2: Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We recently recorded a bonus episode on the sequel to the delightful French animated film Ernest & Celestine and the new HBO series Telemarketers. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash next picture show. That's patreon.com slash next picture show.
0: It's very
3: difficult to
1: keep the line between the past and the present. You
2: believe
3: that someone
2: out of the past
3: can enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
2: Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie that the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Genevieve Koski, Tasha Robinson, and Scott Tobias. The gang's all here this time. In our next episodes, we're going to be talking about a pair of unusual high school comedies. But let's start with a broad question. Is a high school experience better suited for comedy or drama?
1: Scott? Uh, but both. There's no way you can't you can't make, give me commit to this. Uh, it's a fa- false dichotomy. So I I, I would say uh, <laughs> that I, I think it's suited to both. Though I will say I have a I really like teenage kind of angst in, in emotion. I mean, there's it's a, it's a time when when people when people experience things in such a raw and pure way and in such an intense way and I think that makes for good cinema but you know they also do a lot of crazy screwed up stuff that makes it for good comedy so I'm not biting on this Keith <laughs> anyone else have strong opinions
4: I find myself in a rare moment of complete accord with Scott. I, I don't think yes. you can separate the two, but I do think that it depends hugely on wh- whose perspective a story is from and you know whose story you're telling. Because some of those stories tend way more towards drama and some way more towards comedy. And it's it's mostly just kind of the, the flavor of the protagonist. What kind of person are you
0: delving into in high school? Uh, but I, I, I think both of them can work. I think both can work. I think I personally maybe lean a little bit more toward comedy just because generally I think high school, well, I uh, I think almost exclusively high school movies are being made by people who are no longer in high school uh, and (laughs) probably fairly removed from it. And, uh, you know, like when you're in high school, everything is the most dramatic thing ever. Like everything seems like really, really serious. You know, that's just part of the teenage experience. And I think as you get further removed from that you can appreciate the humor in it more so i think maybe that just kind of gels with the comedic approach but you know i think if i was in high school my answer might be drama because it would seem like a much more inherently dramatic experience to me at the time
1: yeah i mean all of my worst high school uh, memories uh, have been converted into comic anecdotes (laughs) every single one
4: (laughs) that said i i appreciated high school comedies when i was in high school because i saw them as making fun of other people you know there's that whole high school experience where everybody else is kind of alien to you because you haven't really learned like nearly enough about other people and how to read them And the people in different kind of like social cliques from you in particular, uh, something we're going to see in a couple of upcoming movies, I think, are (laughs) just kind of like alien people from alien planets. So, you know, watching the movies of John Hughes or whatever as a teenager, I definitely had a sense that like, oh, yeah, this is this is all really funny because it's about all those other people in high school that I don't know anything about, really.
2: Well, whichever, if there's a right answer or not, our next two episodes will stay in the realm of comedy, although one of them comes from a dark corner of that realm and the other is laced with blood and violence. Tasha, can you tell us about them? Sure.
4: After premiering at the Sundance Film Festival in January 1989, the dark comedy Heathers had a short lived theatrical release and might have disappeared after that were it not for good reviews and an appreciative audience that discovered it via video stores. Written by Daniel Waters and directed by Michael Lehman, The film stars Winona Ryder as Veronica Sawyer, the only member of a clique of high school girls not named Heather. A reluctant participant in their mean girl games, Veronica believes she's found a sympathetic soulmate in a sardonic new student, JD, played by Christian Slater. But JD's approach to high school hypocrisy quickly takes a deadly turn. We were reminded of Heather's mix of heightened satire and violence when we watched Bottoms, the second film directed by Emma Seligman, who previously directed Shiva Baby, which we covered in an earlier pairing, alongside Rachel Getting Married. Co-starring Rachel Sennett, who co-wrote the script with Seligman, and Io Edabari, the film follows two queer outcasts on the lowest rung of their high school social ladder, who pick up status via a fight club they start to impress the school's popular cheerleaders.
2: So this week, we'll travel back to the end of the 1980s for a story of revenge gone wrong. Then next week, we'll fast forward to the present for a tale of another attempt to upend the high school hierarchy. We'll start both journeys after the break.
3: Heather Chandler, Heather McNamara, Heather Duke, Veronica Sawyer. Why are you such a mega brat? Because I can be. The most powerful click at Westerberg. God, Veronica, drool much? Most people would die to get into it. Heather number
4: one just looked right at me.
3: I'm worshiped Westerberg and I'm only a junior. Veronica would kill to get out of it. You were nothing before you met me. You were a Girl Scout cookie. JD has come to answer her prayers. I'm a no-rest, build-up man myself. We'll kill her. He's got a way with women. Uh, 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 a way with words. Is this as good for you as it is for me? Life can suck! And a very special way with a gun. Veronica can't live with him. Now. I love my dead gay son. And she can't live without him. Is this turnout weak or what? I have at least 70 more people at my funeral.
2: In 1989, Heather's played less like another high school comedy than an attempt to dig that genre's grave. Where films by John Hughes and those he inspired depicted high school as a place of deep social striations that could be overcome via human connection, each one of us is a brain and an athlete and a basket case, etc., etc., Heather's offered a more cynical vision. The popular kids ruled the school. Only murder could change that, and even then, only for a little while. I've cut off Heather Chandler's head, and Heather Duke's head has sprouted in its place like some mythological thing my eighth-grade boyfriend would know about, the monocle-clad Veronica Sawyer writes in her diary after maybe unwittingly participating in the murder of the most popular girl in school. Even graduation offers no comfort, as suggested by a visit to a college party in which every innocuous conversation barely masks a sexual threat. The only solution, per Veronica's new boyfriend, JD, is to blow it up as he plans to do. And apart from a last-moment swerve away from nihilism, that's pretty much the only solution offered by Heathers, metaphorically, if not literally. Veronica begins the film already aware of the problems of the high school world in which she lives, with its cruel students and clueless adults. After beginning to see J.D., that awareness only deepens, the fake suicides J.D. stages for a pair of Heathers and their popular boy equivalents on the football team only turns them into misunderstood heroes thanks to a culture that romanticizes youth while turning a blind eye to its mercilessness. For all its quotable lines, there's a sense of hopelessness at the heart of Heathers. Until that is its final moments, where Veronica's outreach to the unpopular girl her friends have cruelly named Martha Dump Truck provides an echo of the breakfast club and its ilk. Though Heathers earned largely positive notices, for some reviewers in 1989, this was a sign of failure. Quote, to mount Black comedy successfully, Sheila Benson wrote in the Los Angeles Times, you must have a clearly defined point of view. You must also be willing to follow your dangerous outlook to its most outrageous conclusion. Unfortunately, director Michael Lehman's point of view is swivel-mounted. He doesn't have the courage of his cynicism. Unquote. In some ways, it's a tough criticism to dismiss. Heather slams on the brakes with a happyish ending that reveals its free-willing satire is essentially scattershot. What, beyond pointing out that high school and everyone associated with it sucks, was the point of it all. But that aimlessness is also part of the film's appeal. For anyone whose high school experience doesn't square with gauzy movie fantasies, almost everyone in other words, it serves as a kind of confirmation that the problem isn't them. In Cameron Crowe's Singles, a film from a few years after Heather's, one character stuck at a terrible party tells another, You know, it's okay to loathe these people. Knowing that may not solve anything, but sometimes it's nice to hear it anyway.
4: Dear God, please make sure this never
0: happens to me, because I don't think I can handle suicide. Fast early acceptance into an Ivy League school, and please let it be Harvard. Amen. Jesus, God in heaven, Uh, why'd you
3: have to kill such hot snatch? It's a joke, man. Jeez, people are so serious. Hail Mary who aren't in heaven, pray for all the sinners so we don't get caught. Another joke, man. I prayed for the death of Heather Chandler many times. And I felt bad every time I did it, but I kept doing it anyway. Now I know you understood everything. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah.
2: All right, so everyone, how did I've not seen this movie in quite a while? How did it hold up for you? Held up great. This is a, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yeah,
0: this, uh, well, no, that's that's fine. I, it, it also held up great for me. This is a movie I've revisited pretty frequently i think last time i watched it was maybe 5 years ago or so and even though i've seen it so many times i always kind of have a moment toward the beginning i think at this time it was when jd pulls the gun on the on the football players in the cafeteria where i'm reminded of like this movie's very weird tone mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, like it like i always forget how absurdist it is until i'm in it and then it's always kind of like a fun surprise that this, you know, movie that kind of presents as a, you know, John Hughes-esque 80s teen movie is not really that, even while appearing so on the surface. So there's always just, for me, kind of that moment of like getting on its wavelength. And that's that's fun. And once I'm there, you know, I can acknowledge that it has flaws. But uh, I think for me, this time I was reminded just like how great the Winona Ryder performance is and how much fun she has with that teen angst. What I was just talking about in the introduction where just everything is the most serious ever, but in this case, like it actually it is life and death, you know? So I think that the translation of that teenage feeling, you know, through someone who is literally like too smart for her own good, you know, she's an actual genius in a lot of ways. And just like the way that causes her to kind of spiral into the situation. I think is is very clever, and I always enjoy watching it play out, uh, ending and all.
1: I think it holds up well for me, and it just the film when it came out just hit at just such the perfect moment. I was uh, still in high school in 1989, <laughs> and uh, and of course I had been weaned on uh, the, uh, the, these John Hughes uh, films, uh, which were which had had sort of dominated. You know, sort of the you know, Gen X adolescence. This that was kind of at the heart of it, and this felt so refreshing uh, and so different, and kind of rebuked that way of thinking. It just felt more. It just it was just a cool film. I mean, it is a film that takes place at Westerberg High School. You know, I mean, it felt like a the, the you know the the made up language. You know, the the the, the harshness of it, uh, the way that it really attacks this social ecosystem that had caused me no end of annoyance and frustration, it, you know, it just, it was just so cathartic. And I think watching it today, I mean, it certainly is of its time, but it works really well. The lines really still staying. And, and, uh, as Genevieve says, when in a writer is, uh, the performance is terrific. And I just think there's a, there's a level of risk-taking at every step in this movie that still feels super sharp. So I, I do, I do like it.
4: Boy, I'm sure not disagreeing that there, there's a lot of risk taking in this movie, but I'm a little surprised at these responses. I hadn't watched this movie in uh, probably 20 years at this point, and. I remembered the broad beats of it, but not a lot of those really weird details. And I was actually kind of shocked revisiting this movie. Uh, The humor is a lot weirder than I remember. There are a lot of very strange touches to it. And I just think it plays very differently in an era of nonstop school shootings. The kind of mm-hmm. humor factor of like, oh, this kid isn't going to be bullied. He brought a gun to school. The visual mm. image of, of J.D. just charging around everywhere in his black trench coat just plays so differently post-Columbine. There's a running joke about somebody else who wants to blow up the school because of the way that he's been treated. And he he's just a, a visual gag throughout all of it. And none of this is a bad thing. You know, this movie was made in a very different era. And the jokes just uh, feel very strange and, and of their time. But I was a lot more shocked by this movie, not in an offended by the comedy kind of way, but just in a, oh, wow, they really went for it uh, with uh, just a lot of these gags uh, sort of way. It's, this movie is just so much more subversive than I remember. And it felt incredibly subversive in its time.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, I I was surprised by how much I remember. It. Like, I basically I, wait, I I know that what line's coming up next. <laughs> you know, I I, under, I, under, yeah. I understand what's uh, you know, I, I I've seen this movie a few times. Although it had been a been a while, you know. That said, I I did find, you know, as I mentioned in the introduction here, I find it's satire kind of aimless, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just kind of like a free for all. The take down of of high school of a high school experience or high school movies but also you know the realities of high school as well so you know it was it was it was fun to revisit for sure i i did kind of have the same reaction you did tasha where like you know violence in school has taken on a some, somewhat different cast over the years well but, i mean
0: that's that's like why i i mentioned that moment that early moment of jd pulling out the gun because that mm-hmm. does feel like Like the moment where you are like, oh, this is not a movie (laughs) that that could be made today that would Mm -hmm. be made today, you know, and but. Like, I think there's something to be said for that when you're watching movies that are made in another era, something that like does kind of jostle you back into the moment when it was made and kind of asks you to maybe set aside your your current notions, I guess, and, and you know, put yourself back into when the movie
1: was made. Well, yeah, I mean, like that, that's one of the that's a huge plus for me, really, just like this is a film that understood things that we were going to be uh, that, that, you know, understood kind of a. uh a sentiment, a feeling that was going to take over the culture in a horrifying way, but those feelings of alienation, of of a, of a, a urge to uh, commit violence, of these of these really uh, the social structure that left a lot of people out and you know fomented a lot of ill will. I mean, it, you know, this is a film that is tapped into that in, in a way that that nothing else really was at the time. I, I you know, so I feel like all of those elements. You know, you may see them now and say that's pretty bracing, but I mean, I certainly I think I kind of give the film a a lot of credit for having its finger on the pulse.
4: We hear a lot these days. I I feel like we're maybe a little past the peak of this, but uh, there's there's been a lot of whining, particularly from comedians like they they wouldn't let me do this joke anymore. They wouldn't let me make this film anymore. And I think it's worth remembering and and thinking about the fact that, yeah, in a lot of cases, we wouldn't let you make this film today. And that's fine because this is a completely different era. It's not Mm -hmm. about being more sensitive or about censorship or God help us all wokeness. It's about the fact that the culture changes and yeah, you probably couldn't make this film today, but why would you want to Mel Brooks a couple years back said they wouldn't let him make blazing saddles today. And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine with that. We already have Blazing Saddles. It's a perfectly good <laughs> film of its time. I don't need somebody to to remake it. And I don't need somebody to remake this film and sweat over like what the the violence looks like. I, I kind of feel like somebody did make this film today, and it's called Bottoms. and it's 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 fine. <laughs> you know, it just it looks completely different because it's made for a completely different era. So there's a lot here that you couldn't get away with today. But it's because everything has changed and the version of it that's being made today is made for today instead of made for 1989.
2: I had to be pedantic here and say they did make remake Billy King Saddles as a film called Pause of Fury, The Legend of Hex. <laughs> this is the true.
0: <laughs> and I, uh, I'll also throw in related to Heathers. They did recently turn it into a musical, uh, a West End musical that uh, you can actually watch uh, on, on Roku TV. They filmed it. I put on a little bit of it, but wasn't able to get all, all through it. But uh, I read some reviews of Heathers, the musical, and like kind of one of the biggest criticism of the fairly mixed reviews it, it received is that it does kind of just by virtue of making it a musical kind of take away a lot of the bite of, of mm, heathers yeah you know and like like to go back uh to uh, what we were talking about uh, yes this is a comedy and, you know, it's, it's making jokes about, you know, very violent subject matter. But also, like, this is an era when bullying in particular was really used for comedic effect. <laughs> you know, like, bullying was often a joke in high school movies, you know. And this is, yes, it's doing it in a kind of comedic way, but it is also treating the consequences of bullying with life and death circum, mm. literally life and death circumstances. Like there is a degree of taking this seriously that I think does kind of carry into our current era and our current awareness of bullying and its effects specifically. The guns in school is a whole other thing. But uh, I I think as far as, you know, sort of its take on the high school hierarchy and the seriousness of the trickle down effects of that, like it's there. There's a glimmer of it there.
2: I was also wondering if this film makes sense out of context not so much out of the out of its era but like on the heels of so many 80s teen films if it's not necessarily a parody of those it's definitely in deep conversation with those
4: mm-hmm. i mean one aspect of this movie that doesn't make sense much today completely outside of the the context of 80s teen comedies is just boy the way these quote unquote kids look Uh, I think when I watched this movie in 1989, there was maybe a sense that, okay, you can accept these kids as high school kids because I always you know felt that there were other people in school who kind of had it more together than I did like in terms of being further along in physical development or in fashion in, in having like a brand or a look or whatever. These days I watched this film and from the opening scene, I was like, Oh, those, those are not high school juniors. They're 35 year
2: old business women. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, I mean, Ryder was 16 when she made this. Ryder was 16. and Christian Slater was 19. I mean, I I think, I think maybe mm -hmm. you're, Confusing it with and bottoms, bottoms in some no, way. no, no. Slater, <laughs> Slater
4: actually looks really surprisingly young in scenes. I'm, I'm talking about the three heathers and their ginormous teased hair, and their, their literal business suits with the giant '80s uh, shoulder pads. Uh, Lehman actually says in the the commentary that, like, going back and looking at this film, he laughs because Ryder was an appropriate age and everybody else was was 30. But it's not just, like, their actual age. It's the way they're dressed. It's the way they're made up. Like, none of the Heathers to me rings true as a high school student anymore. They all look like, you know, fashion plates from from (laughs) women's business wear quarterly. Which I just kind of find hilarious. But, I mean, you mm-hmm. watch this in the context of a bunch of John Hughes movies and you're like, oh, yeah, everybody had that hair. That's what they look like.
0: Yeah, I think it's a lot of it just comes down to, like, the style of the time, as was the style yeah. of the time, you know. <laughs> but, but, but I did also, like, notice I do the think onions on is... everyone's belt. <laughs> right? Um, but... Also, as far as, like, the, the Heathers go, too, like, I guess it does maybe make sense for, like, the, the Queen Bees, the popular, you know, the, the ones who run the school to register as, you know, older, more more particular. I'm actually... Re- God, I keep bringing up Clueless on this podcast. One of these days, we're going to do Clueless, but I, I'm, re- I'm reminded of of Clueless too because like those are also high school characters who, for the most part, present as as much older. And there's even a line uh, from Ty who you know comes across much younger. Like you're so, so grown up here, you know. <laughs> so I think there is maybe just like again in that high school hierarchy, presenting as more grown up. Equates to like popularity or you know a higher social status.
4: Well, we we certainly see that when Heather Chandler wants more than anything to go to college parties, which she -hmm. doesn't seem to enjoy. She doesn't seem to enjoy dealing with uh, college boys. She certainly doesn't enjoy what one of those college boys wants her to do, but she does it anyway because she associates it with maturity Mm -hmm. and popularity
1: and being more important. I mean, that's always that's one of the kind of key elements of the of the film though is just is just the idea of that this cast system that is in place at this high school and many others doesn't make anybody happy (laughs) even the people who are on top you know certainly does it with veronica or uh, heather chandler it doesn't with Shannon doherty's character who's you know bulimic Um, duke (laughs) what
0: that's Heather Duke. Please Heather get your Duke, Heathers I'm straight. I'm not. I'm going to get the Heathers all all mixed <laughs> no.
1: up. But, but uh, none of them. And then and then the third Heather is uh, is calling into a uh, you know
0: McNamara
1: McNamara into a hotline, <laughs> right? Uh, so so nobody is nobody's made happy by this system. But you know it still exists, which is kind of why there's something evergreen about this this movie is that you can try to you can knock off the head of the snake, or you can you can uh, blow up the high school. But some things never change. One
4: thing about this movie being in conversation with high school comedies of the 80s is that so many of those movies are in some way about a boy trying to get laid. And I think mm. that this movie's relationship with sexuality and it's, it's thought about like what teen boys are like and what that experience of being, you know, pursued by single-minded teen boys is just very much in conversation with uh, the eighties high school comedies of the time. It's very derogatory towards them. It very much sees sex as a transactional thing that one does for popularity for the most part. And then you have that uh, kind of like sweet, strange little idol out in the backyard between Victoria and JD. That's kind of like you know, here's here's what teen sex is supposed to be like. (laughs) It has something to do, yeah, it has something to do with strip (laughs) croquet. But the the whole, all of the aspect of like what it's like when popular people or like high high social status people have sex in high school is just so far away from what 80s movies were thinking about at the time. It's unusually uh, cynical and, and subversive and really kind of ugly in a very memorable way. Like that shot of Heather spitting uh, at herself in the mm. mirror after giving a blowjob to a college kid is just one of the kind of low-key most memorable moments in this movie because it's just so different from what was going on in the movies around it at the time.
2: We're kind of, in some ways, joining the story in progress because Veronica has clearly made some choices that have brought her to this this social strata, and now regrets it. But what is, what is her deal? We get a little bit of that backstory when she talks to to her friend Betty, who she's left behind. Who bit of trivia? I just found out it was portrayed by Martin Sheen's daughter, Renee Estevez. Oh, what was her motivation? Do you ever get a sense of like why she made that ascent?
4: I actually really love this question, Keith, because it's something that I did not think about consciously while watching this movie. And turning it over after I kind of read your questions list, I was just like, "That's that, that's really kind of at the heart of it, isn't it?" I mean, I really think that the answer to the criticism that you kind of pinpointed in your keynote about this movie being aimless and the ending being a cop out is all about the question of who Veronica is and why she's been doing what she's been doing. And I think there's a lot of evidence throughout this film that she's just been kind of letting herself be easily led. She thinks she's smarter than everyone else. She thinks she's smart enough to kind of participate in the system in a way that gets her bennies, but that she's outside of it, you know, that she can bucket against the Heathers whenever she wants and gets away with it. She can kind of like go along with things she doesn't agree with, but just kind of separate herself from it and it doesn't really matter. And this whole movie is about her finding out that that isn't true. And the end of the movie to me is about her really making a conscious choice about who she wants to be instead of letting herself be led first by the Heathers and then by J.D. Like we see her over and over throughout this movie. Telling JD no and standing up for herself and drawing a line in the sand and making decision and then backsliding and like letting herself be pulled along and controlled by one or the other of the people in this movie and I I really think this is a story about somebody who is allowing herself to give into like peer pressure and high school hierarchies and then deciding by the end that there are things that matter more.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I I agree, and I think I think it's a pretty identifiable journey. I think when you're a teenager at least maybe until you gain a certain amount of enlightenment becoming popular being popular that's an ascent that you want to make it's like it's like the social equivalent of getting a's on your report card you just want you know you, you kind of want that level of uh you want that level of popularity you want people to to think you're cool or whatever and and uh and you know the idea—the idea that you can be yourself, make your own choices, make your—you know—be friends with people you're actually kind of comfortable being friends with—that's kind of an enlightened state that that tends to come uh, a little bit later for most people. And uh, college is tends to be what, where it really sorts itself out, which is why everybody enjoys college and nobody enjoys high school, I think. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't disagree with any of, you know, these characterizations of Veronica in relation to, you know, being part of the the popular group. But I do keep coming back to that conversation she has with JD about how, like, they wanted to put her straight through to high school from, like, sixth grade or something. But uh, they didn't because, like, she wouldn't be able to make friends, you know, like, like, Veronica is she just presents as an outsider. That's also just maybe like a Wynonna Ryder thing, because this was after Beetlejuice, right? Mm-hmm. Like she was yep. kind of, she, she'd already kind of like started that, that persona, you know? So like she doesn't really fit with the Heathers. Like there's no real indication that she has like changed her personality or, or, or changed how she presents in order to be part of this group. It almost kind of reads to me that she just... Took it on as a challenge, like to see if she could, Hmm. and now she's realizing that she hates these people, you know. But it's almost like I read it almost as her trying to not necessarily like make friends, but trying to like play the role of a successful high school student. I'm maybe bumbling this this a little bit, but there is a feeling that like this was a challenge that she took on and is realizing she doesn't like <laughs> where where it led you know Uh, It almost reminds me a little bit of Lindsay Weir in in Freaks and Geeks, too. How she left behind her, her previous friends to purposefully put herself into this new group that she was kind of smarter than and better than in a lot of ways. But she just kind of like saw it as like, this is what I'm supposed to do, I guess. So I'm going to. I don't know. But it is a really interesting choice to just like kind of drop us in to this relationship with her supposed you know best friends that she has grown to hate when we meet her
2: <laughs> what do you make of the innate midwesterness of this of, of the film i mean it's very specifically Ohio this is not a something that could a story that could take place on the East Coast or the west coast, although I'm sure high schools there had their own you know had their own own caste system as well but but this is, makes a choice to make it the midwest what does that bring to it?
0: Well, you couldn't have that mineral water gag if it was <laughs> that's instead. true
2: that's true <laughs>
4: I mean, to me, it just kind of feels like a response to John Hughes movies, you know, which yeah. are just mm-hmm. so Chicago suburban centric. I, I I think if this was a much more like L.A. focused movie or a, a New York, you know, upstate focused movie, it would have a, a different feel that would feel less like it was expressly commenting on uh, on John Hughes. But I'm actually going to throw that one back at you, Keith, because you listened to the entire commentary on this one, didn't you?
2: I got about half. I need to finish it. But yeah, I listened to quite a bit of it.
4: I don't have the DVD that you have, so I didn't have access to it. I found some of it online. You're, you
2: don't have the fancy imported <laughs> Blu-ray that, uh, that can play in my all-region Blu-ray player, Tasha? I do not. <laughs> uh,
4: but the the part of it that I was able to find and listen to was pretty fascinating. I feel like the revelation that most blew my mind was that Heather Duke is constantly carrying Moby Dick around, and there's a whole bunch of gags <laughs> around her copy of Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be Catcher in the Rye, and they couldn't get the rights to it. So they made it Moby <laughs> Dick as a joke. But I, there was I, I, the part of it that I listened to was super insightful. Did he, in the part that you listened to, did he not say anything about the setting or about John Hughes?
2: No he did. Uh not not about Hughes. I didn't get that far but 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 uh yes like, all the thing about Moby Dick was to be was supposed to be catching the right I do love Eskimo. I do love that whole Like, you know, you wouldn't have had that without it. You know, it's funny. I rewatched The Shining recently uh, after listening to that audio commentary, and uh, it opened the first time you see Shelley Duvall, she's reading Catcher in the Rye. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, they got it. <laughs> what, what did, what did uh, how is that a better association than It's it? well, possible I it.
4: that Stanley Kubrick had a little more pull in the film world than Michael Lehman. Michael
2: Lehman first. Yeah. yeah could, could be. Could be. But also, I mean, the other thing is Daniel Waters, the writer, is, is from Ohio, grew up in. Indiana, so I, I think it's kind of mm. maybe a "right what you know" situation. You don't get cow tipping, you uh, know, in, a, in yeah. a California movie. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you know.
1: and w- Westerberg also, you know, I mean, that's that's uh, Minnesota anyway. I, I didn't feel like it was this hyper sp- specific evocation of the of the Midwest, other than those details that have already been mentioned. But I think there is just something about the Midwest that makes it just comfort that you you know you can make it kind of every high school in a way that an east coast school or west coast school couldn't be so in that sense that the the broad points that the film is trying to address about you know being a teenager in american high school you know that those points fit into into a midwest setting because that's that's, it's because it's it becomes kind of every school
0: i think the reason it doesn't quite register as a strongly midwest movie to me is that is la weather Like there is no weather in in, in this, you know, and and everyone's dressed, everyone's dressed for LA weather, you know, and it's just, it's a, it's a little too shiny and colorful to register as, you know, part of the Rust Belt uh, for for me. Um, But it's more about like facilitating certain jokes than, uh, you know, creating a deep sense of place. I
4: feel like part of those jokes are just, I mean, this, it may just be coastal snobbery, Because a Mm -hmm. lot of the humor that is specifically based around the setting is just like, well, it's the Midwest. Like, of course, the cops are dopes, are easily led incompetence. Like, of course, all of the adults are just kind of like gormless cows who could basically be cow tipped at any point. Like (laughs) the complete uselessness of the adults in this movie strikes me as very much a, you know, New York coastal elitism idea of what uh, people in the Midwest are like in general.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think I, I always saw it just more as commentary on on the divide between teens and adults. Not specific to the Midwest. I mean, uh, Veronica's parents are, are are so checked out of what's going on underneath their own <laughs> own, own roof, and it's almost kind of like you know she's she's got the, she's got the grades and she has you know there's no visible signs of, of trouble uh, in her life, so they're just they're just going to keep their hands away, which is you know, maybe not the best approach to parody. Now I'm not, uh, my, my kid's not a teenager yet, but, but I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm at to prepare <laughs> for it. I don't, I don't think I want to just read spy novels and ignore everything else going on in my kid's life. Uh, <laughs> How uh, like, much like,
0: hey, do you have in the house Keith? <laughs> at the moment?
2: Not very much, but, but hmm. you know, that could change. Sounds
0: like a problem. Sounds like you're an idiot. <laughs> uh, and, uh, th- that uh, brings me to something I wanted to mention about the parents, not just Veronica's parents, but also J.D.'s dad, who is <laughs> a, a, so a whole whole thing. But, <laughs> but both J.D. and Veronica have this like kind of pattern with their parents that they keep going back to, like J.D. and his dad do the father-son switch thing and... Veronica as i said does the well you're an idiot thing and it's just like this sense that they have calcified in their roles without any actual effort put into the <laughs> the communication between them
1: if you're a teenager who does not want your parents in in your business it's it's a much smoother road to ha- to get get mm-hmm. into those types of conversations where you're really kind of just on the surface and, and there's not much in the way inquiry is being made. And if you kind of are keeping your nose clean as Veronica does, then why, 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 why push it? So you can kind of just have this pleasant super surfacey superficial relationship and it's fine.
4: That said, I mean, I think there's a very telling thing here in both of those sets of, you know, teen parent relationships where everything I said about Veronica kind of being checked out and feeling like she's too good for the situation she's in. So she doesn't have to commit her emotions or be too present for it. I think that's very true of her parents. And I think it's very clear that JD has learned a lot from his dad about dealing with problems and uh, very specifically about explosives, but also just about a a cynical and aggressive way of dealing with the world Mm -hmm. and how to see other people, how to interpret other people. So I I think one of the things going on with kind of the clueless adults, at least the parents that we see, is we're seeing grown-up versions of these kids, who have just like let those attitudes spread and metastasize into their careers or their relationship with the community, as well as everything else?
2: There's also the other adults, particularly the teachers seem put out they have to really do anything most of the time but um I'm I except for the the person who was like really activated by all this is as if you know this is the moment she's been waiting for is as is Pauline Fleming the the played by Penelope Milford who is the guidance counselor who immediately tries to control the situation of mourning uh the tragic loss of of uh these young young people i think it's some of the the darkest and and most biting satire in the film the the idea sort of like sending up the concern and the way people kind of adults in particular process uh teenage suicide and you know i it's to me that stuff's really still uncomfortable in a
1: good way Oh, she has, she's got my favorite line in the movie, for sure. Mm. And I wanted, I'm i looking it up now just so I can get it right, which is... Uh,
4: is it
0: uh, whether or not yeah, to commit suicide is one of <laughs> or yeah, or the, the most important decisions? Is. The most important choice, teen yeah, that, makes is just, <laughs> that is just <laughs>
1: spectacular. That's such a good line. And when it, when it arrives, the way it sort of detonates, is just perfect. Good stuff. Good writing. Danny Waters.
0: Yeah, I was struck on this viewing by sort of the design of the... I guess it's a teacher's lounge, but it really presents as like a corporate boardroom, you know, Mm -hmm. just like this really Mm -hmm. kind of sterile, with this like big monolithic table and the principal at the head. And like, they really are those scenes there where the teachers and administration are discussing this. It really does kind of play like a boardroom scene and kind of have this corporate vibe to it where they're, you know, is this a half day worth, (laughs) is this worth a half day, you know? and uh mrs fleming kind of like steps into the role of i guess like crisis manager or, or, or you know or, or maybe like a pr publicist type of, of role within this maybe corporatized vision of high school so that also just feels very 80s and of the moment and i uh just another thing about the production design the color red is all over this movie in a really interesting way obviously uh Heather Chandler's red scrunchie being the big one. But on that big boardroom table, uh, there's like a giant bowl of in the first after Heather Chandler's death, it's just like a bowl of comically large red apples. And then after the uh, two football players die, it's like a bowl of (laughs) red footballs, you know. So it's just like just another like little little detail uh, that's kind of adding to the, I guess, heightened feel of this uh, film's production design. Liked it. It's a very, very heightened
2: movie. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. It doesn't necessarily register as that heightened until you kind of get in the world a little bit. I mean, the costuming is very specific and very designed, but it's only like as it kind of goes along, you realize that everything is kind of that way. I think it works, but it's almost it's on the verge of being too much, isn't it? It's interesting
0: the way it reveals itself, because like the very first scene, you mm-hmm. know, of them like trampling, walking through that little fenced off uh, garden bed. And then, of course, the the croquet ball to the face, uh, you know, and Veronica's head sticking out the whole very iconic image. Like in that moment, I think it kind of plays as like dream sequence or fantasy, but then as you continue moving through your film, the film, it's like maybe it wasn't like maybe that's just like <laughs> the, the this world, you know. So it does like it doesn't quite pull the rug out from under you, but it kind of like gently tugs it little by little as as it uh, reveals itself in the first act.
4: I don't know. I I thought that image of her being hit in the face by croquet balls was pretty over the top. And ends up being just a much more surreal image than most of what goes on in the film. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of dream theater to to the colors and the costumes and a lot of the weird little touches, like Veronica wearing a monocle whenever she's writing mm-hmm. in her journal mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in huge, scrawling letters. I, I I don't know how she doesn't go through a journal a night as big <laughs> as she writes. But... That first image is just so like over the top in terms of suggesting a style like a a, a what you feel is on screen in a way that kind of trumps reality. In, in a way that a lot of the movie, I think, doesn't necessarily live up to. And it also suggests a relationship between her and the Heathers that I just don't feel like the parts of the movie that take place at high school entirely own up to. Like, everything I've been saying about her being kind of, like, removed and above it all is kind of being worked against in that image of them, like, literally using her as a, a pawn in their, their abusive games.
2: Speaking of heightened elements to kind of bring a sense of artificiality to it, uh, Christian Slater is pretty clearly doing a Jack Nicholson impression here, which he copped to at the time. Something everyone comments on. Uh, what does that? I mean, for me, it works. I I, I like this performance, and and I uh, I feel like a teenager trying to emulate a rebellious idol at this stage. You know, Jack would be Jack Nicholson would be a person they would turn to. But what do you think of it?
1: I always assumed JD was supposed to be James Dean, right? I mean, was JD
2: is can be James Dean or juvenile delinquent, and you know, there's lots of lots of things baked into that. Yeah,
1: I just I just yeah. thought it was kind of like the idea. It, it, JD always suggested to me the conception of this character as as a uh, modern day rebel without a, a cause. Rebel daddy? I'm a rebel dotty. I'm a loner dotty. A rebel. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I like this performance. It is, I mean, it's 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 something. I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> i mean i've reconciled to liking it
0: i don't know how you make this character work without committing to a choice like that because like i guess like the progression jd has to make in pretty short order from like object of desire to potential soulmate to psychopath is a tough progression to encapsulate under a single characterization so and i think jack nicholson is probably a smart choice and being able to <laughs> do that progression of you know kind of exuding a certain charisma that you know maybe isn't psychotic until oh oh no it is it's psychotic
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a you have to have that character be a style it has to be a stylized performance in order to work basically
0: yeah like it's not a natural character so i i, I don't know how you would make a natural performance work with it mm-hmm. i mean it's maybe not impossible, but, you know, I haven't seen it. I, I don't have any, like, comparison point to, to...
2: Yeah, I mean, I was thinking River Phoenix is a better actor than Christian Slater, you know, top to bottom. But I don't think he... I think Christian Slater gets a better performance as, as JD than he possibly could have. Just yeah. to draw on a contemporary there. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Poor River Phoenix is just slamming
2: River Phoenix. Not even- no, no, I said, he was, <laughs> I said he's good. He's good. Yeah. I okay, just don't yeah. know that he could, you know, anyway.
4: Maybe it's just time, but watching that performance this time around, I don't see Christian Slater imitating Jack Nicholson. I just see Christian Slater
2: being Christian Slater. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, this there's that. I mean, his his, his default sh- persona is pretty close to Jack Nicholson anyway.
4: <laughs> but I, I was actually pretty distracted from the moment he appeared listening to his voice, because I, I kept thinking, I've heard this performance before, and it It's not a Jack Nicholson performance. And I finally pinned it down. Fran Kranz in The Cabin in the Woods is doing Christian Slater in this movie. (laughs) Like every every single like vowel and and drawl and emphasis comes directly from this movie. It's Hmm. uncanny. And that's a movie that I've watched so many times at this point. It's kind of imprinted on my brain. I revisited it very recently for another podcast that I cheated on y'all with. (laughs) Uh, That episode is not out yet, so I'm not going to point people to it. But having just watched it, yeah, Fran- Frank Frank is doing this performance, and it's a copy of a copy, and it's kind of hilarious. It kind of makes me appreciate that uh, that performance even more.
2: So let's talk about the ending, which I which I brought up before as being the one element that even some people who like this film will point to as as its weakest element. I'm kind of one of them, uh, you know. I don't know how else you end this movie. Uh, the original ending was the high school blows up and uh, never filmed, but in the screenplay, the high school blows up and they have prom in heaven, which I certainly would like to see that, but I don't necessarily know that that would be a better ending to this film than than what we got. Well, I guess the main accusation, is is it a cop-out, the, the happy-ish ending that we get? N- this no. ending
4: is not a cop-out. The heaven ending is a tremendous cop-out. That mm. is a terrible ending. And I, <laughs> I can't even begin to imagine how bad that would have been. If nothing else, I just, I feel like... The moment where J.D. closes his eyes and, and puts his arms out and kind of embraces his own death, I think it's one of the most iconic things in high school movies ever. I think it's shot incredibly well. That slow crane up where we like lose him off the screen and we're just watching Veronica having come to terms with this. And then the explosion happens and and she's still standing. I think all of that is incredibly well done, and a sort of comic ending where they're all in heaven, presumably still making pate jokes, is just not to be born, not even to be thought of. What the hell,
1: people? I mean, who knows how I, it played? I mean, I like I like the ending that's here. I, I do. Uh, one of the things I really like about it is how it kind of reflects back on a on an earlier bit where veronica's in the in the car and uh burns herself with the uh, cigarette lighter and uh and uh and christian slater lights his cigarette with uh, the burn uh, on her hand and, you know in this case he he blows up and she's got the cigarette in her mouth and that's and uh, it just feels like a nice kind of counterpoint to that to that moment and, and i think you need to pay off veronica's arc here uh you know to Mm. to her understanding that she needs to change and she needs to kind of figure out what's what who she is and what kind of people she wants to be around and what kind of experiences she wants to have i mean i i think if you deny that with you know a explosion that wipes out everyone it just becomes this kind of a nihilistic ending and it doesn't matter that what veronica's done
2: I guess I just kind of see it as a fundamentally nihilistic film, ultimately. <laughs> so to kind of swerve away from that at the last moment isn't perhaps true to that. But you make a pretty good case for if it's if it's Veronica's story, then that ending makes more sense to me than the what I saw would be the natural conclusion to the fairly pitiless uh, satire uh, of the rest of the film.
4: I don't know. I mean, ultimately, you've got to let people make choices. Or what is this even a story about? If this is just a story about nothing ever changes in high school, all cycles just continue forever, and there is never any way to change things. Like, it's not just that that's a cynical message. It's also a really untrue one and a really boring one. And the idea here that Veronica can make a choice for herself and break the cycle in some way is very empowering. You know, it's very exciting. This is one of those movies that ends what, uh, where I always think of as potentially the last good moment. Like, there's no. No way of seeing, like, is she actually going to enjoy Martha, hanging out with Martha? Are the two of them going to be friends? We don't know if uh, the couple that ends up together in the last two minutes of the movie is going to stay together forever. And we don't need to know that. This is just like, this is a nice moment. It doesn't have to be a gigantic statement about, you know, people everywhere and what it means to be in high school. It can just be somebody making a choice and trying to be a better person. And I think that's pretty cool.
1: I would also argue that, a, that one of the main characters blowing himself up is not a not-dark ending. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, fair enough. Uh, well, this is going to be the end of our discussion of this film, at least for now. We'll bring it up again in the next episode when we talk about it in relation to the new film, Bottoms. Uh, we have more to talk about here. We've got feedback and other delightful things after the break. <music> So now it's time for feedback. But before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the next picture show's mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Campanar and Josh Larson. As we record this episode, Adam and Josh's current episode finds them joined by Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips for a celebration of the Fugitive's 30th anniversary. You know, I rewatched The Fugitive, um, I think last year. I was ahead, I'm was i ahead of the curve when it comes to anniversary celebrations. Uh, that movie just holds up really well. Yeah. You guys watched it recently?
1: I saw it here at Music Box with Andrew Davis in attendance. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, uh, sold out show it was a treat it was it works like gangbusters which is which is how you which is how you want movies to work
2: like- <laughs> which is good that you can say that as a chicagoan now uh, and you can realize how ridiculous it is that 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 harrison ford escapes to the mountains of illinois at one point in, in, <laughs> in, the, in the film but okay so as for feedback we got a letter from will inspired by a recent pairing of barbie and enchanted about movies that paved the way for other movies genevieve can you read that one
0: sure Will writes, Hi all, your recent pairing of Barbie and Enchanted got me thinking about movies that move cinema forward in some way, even if they're not fully successful. I fully endorse the inclusion of films like this, such as Enchanted, as well as films that have been accepted into the canon of great films. It's pretty easy to think of older films that also fit that flawed pioneer category. Waiting for Guffman, along with any film with, quote, positive depictions of gay or lesbian characters from 10 or more years ago, spring to mind. But it's harder to spot trends without the benefit of hindsight. Can you think of any current or recent films that people will look back on 20 years from now that do something refreshing or innovating, even if they don't quite stick the landing? Trans characters seem to be popping up in movies the way that gay or lesbian characters did, often as sympathetic but minor characters. I'm curious as to how well those will age, but I also don't want you to limit yourself to representation. Any new trend would be interesting to me.
4: I mean, I think the big one in this category, for the moment at least, is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse which just kind of came along and completely redefined American animation style. There were so many decades of everybody doing American animation is trying to imitate Walt Disney and their house style. And then Pixar came along and started making a lot of money and everybody started trying to imitate their house style, you know, with uh, that kind of like 3D shaded look and like pushing for hyperrealism and then Spider-Verse literally just immediately changed what people not just were were doing but what they felt they could get away with. There was just an, an instantaneous change. If you look at films released far enough after Spider-Verse that people were actually able to incorporate some of its lessons into the production, you just see so much more experimenting with color and style, with surrealism and like weird, extreme lighting, and with changing styles within the narrative to indicate mood, and a lot of other things that Spider Verse did, I think that that's going to be. There are just there's so many movies that feel innovative for a year and then get forgotten under the weight of other movies that also kind of push the conversation forward. But I think that one's going to be like held up as a watershed twenty years from now.
2: I think we'll see it a lot in terms of technology and and how our current moment, you know, what things we're grappling with now with AI and things like that. They haven't really – that really hasn't turned up as a topic in the specific AI moment we're in right now, hasn't turned up as a topic in films yet, but we'll, we'll get to it. I mean, I, I, I was put in mind by that by, by a piece I did for the reveal about the cyber thrillers of 1995 and how, mm-hmm. you know, you look at a movie like The Net and there's so, so many things that sort are of silly about it in terms of you know, its depiction of the internet and early internet culture. But also, you know, Sandra Bullock's character is is an isolated work at home person, there's identity theft in it. There there is sort of the same some of the it was it's prescient in its own 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 ways as well. So I wonder if, you know, when we see depictions of technology now and such, that might be a case of, of sort of the flawed pioneer. Um that Will was talking about.
4: Uh, yeah in keeping with that one of the other not quite as recent as as Spider-Verse but I think maybe game changing movies that just immediately comes to my mind is Sean Baker's Tangerine mm-hmm. in 2015. I about that too. Yeah first film uh, shot on an iPhone and it just immediately received so much acclaim you know for its immediacy and for how well it it captured a scene but also just for the technical daring of doing that that it really just kind of seemed to reset a lot of people's expectations about what a movie could look like and how cheaply you could make a movie as long as it was very specific very in-depth about like something that people hadn't seen before and a place that they either want to be or maybe don't want to be but want to like have a window into. That movie just really stands out for me as probably still going to be like historically left on the record as a, an important film 20 years from now. Yeah, I, I I would, uh,
1: I'd agree with that. I was thinking of Tangerine myself. And I, I think it has to do sometimes with, just with what comes next. Uh, you know, I mean, I, Barbie is that moment potentially you know that Barbie could be that moment in terms because I feel like that uh, it sort of cracked the code in a way in terms of like okay you can make a film about a brand yeah uh, a, a you can make this this sort of uh, a movie around this consumer product and do it in a way that feels personal that the comments on the culture that it feels completely fresh and original in its way that is something we we so so rarely experience that if we're going to be stuck in a, a place in, in Hollywood where filmmakers are going to have to continue to deal with ip and and turning ip into something you know maybe barbie has that kind of roadmap in terms of how how to make something like that personal and resonant
2: yeah i don't know i'm not that optimistic about it though i mean i think think (laughs) there aren't that many Greta Gerwig's out there you
1: don't think you don't think somebody can make something really good out of uno is that what you're saying (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: i can Skip hear that i can hear me, the dramatic he hans back hans back zimmers, to be hans zimmers hans Zimmer reverse score reverse now La
4: <laughs> i think that there's a there are there are always like lessons that are learned from films like barbie and a lot of those lessons are the the wrong lessons but whenever a film makes this kind of money It does embolden other people. And I I think the next, you know, 400 movies made by women uh, about women are going to say, well, look at the money Barbie made. Like, you shouldn't you shouldn't turn me down by saying your kind of film doesn't make money because, like, look what Barbie did. Mm -hmm. I think it's been going to be quite a while before we see what the takeaways and impact on Barbie uh, exactly was. I Um, I also think that Charlotte
2: Wells hungry, hungry hippos will really make you think.
4: I'm, I I. I can't wait for the Lena Dunham Polly Pocket movie. Wait, no, I can totally <laughs> no, wait for that no, movie because I'm going to have to. Yeah, It super is. One more thing that I'll throw out is <laughs> not necessarily a, a trend that I'm leaping on with the enthusiasm of uh, the other ones, but American Sniper... Seemed to really be a watershed moment for like faith-based specialty movies coming to theaters and finding their own audiences and proving that, you know, that that kind of movie can make money. What we're seeing right now with Sound of Freedom may be a a very manipulated case of uh, box office success, but it's also, you know, a a case that's very clearly showing that some people are heavily invested in making these movies successful. And we've seen a lot of little like peak moments with specifically faith based specialty box office uh, movies coming to theaters. It feels like that shifted a bit with the pandemic and the degree to which like theatrical movie going kind of tamped down a little bit. But I I think that is also still a movie that people are going to kind of cite as a turning point.
2: Does American Sniper meet no, that I,
1: definition, though? It's not a The Passion of the Christ seems more yeah. in line with what yeah. you're talking it about. It wasn't. I mean, every, but everybody I'm, saw American Sniper.
4: Yes, but I'm not talking about specifically like Bible adaptations. I'm talking about movies. Like American Sniper was very heavily... Like made and marketed towards a heavily conservative audience, the same kind of audience that's turning out for Sound of Freedom. And it was a very polarizing movie in terms of its messaging and it's specifically its understanding of the world. And I, I, I think that that's something that's kind of carried forward. Yeah, I can see that.
2: Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextbooktureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about Bottoms, a movie with more explosions and blood than Heather's that's also somehow a little nicer. Uh, Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, stay away from any unfamiliar homemade hangover remedies.